Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's definitely an ego about making the best Mac 10. Um... Getting, getting around um, legislation, getting around policies and procedures that should prevent such things from happening. Um, but at the end of the day, it was all about money. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's the former Scotland Yard detective who headed up the hunt for the supplier of dangerous Mac-10 automatic machine guns that had found their way into the hands of underworld criminals, terrifying communities and facilitating murders from Dublin to Glasgow and across the UK. Now Michael Hallows has penned the story of the UK's biggest gun-running investigation, which followed the trail right to the head of the weapons supply chain and uncovered a fascinating tapestry of criminals, undercover operatives and even politicians caught up in the plot. Today, I'm talking to Michael about Operation Avenar and the greed that lay at the very top of a chilling supply network. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Michael, tell me exactly what an Ingram Mac 10 submachine gun is. The tabloids, I know, have long called them Big Macs. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a specific type of weapon and there's a particular reason that they came to be a significant part of your career. Well, thank you, Nicola. Thanks for the opportunity to um, talk to your audience about uh, my book, Operation Abenar. So the, this Mac 10 uh, is based upon an original by Ingram, that was made as a small, easily concealable uh, submachine gun uh, that uh, could be used in covert military operations, uh, in effect. And other people had borrowed the design, tried to perfect it. And in uh, this investigation that my book's about, one particular individual had taken um, a variant of the MAC-10 and had adapted it, and in so doing, had created a whole load of unique features which became very attractive to uh, rival gangs who purchased these machine guns 
and use them in their gangland feuds over drugs and turf. Uh, the first were in Manchester, um, and then there was others in Liverpool, then in London. Uh, there was one even in, in Dublin. Uh, and so this, um, this turmoil uh, erupted around us uh, where I was working then at the Directorate of Intelligence at Scotland Yard. So you're talking about the sort of late 90s. Yes, indeed. So the investigation uh, began in 97, mm. uh, right about April, May. But these guns have started to appear uh, about six months beforehand. OK, so where were you? And just maybe tell us a little bit about your career to date. That wh- where were you at at that point that uh, you became part of the investigation? Well, I had been a, a uniform inspector uh, and had been uh, successful in applying to do a level transfer uh, to work at the Directorate of, uh, of Intelligence uh, at New Scotland Yard. And I was about 15 years service then. And this became my very first uh, investigation. And my, uh, my remit was to run um, a number of um, intelligence units within Scotland Yard, one of which uh, was the Firearms Intelligence Unit. And my team gathered information, intelligence about all firearms being used and or recovered uh, from across the UK and some aspects of Europe, including um, the Republic of Ireland. So you talked about that uh, the guns had basically been sort of recommissioned. Is that what it was? Yeah, um, we didn't know that initially, uh, but it was uh, proven by the Forensic Science Service, the, uh, the, the gun room at the laboratory, who said these were originally manufactured as live firing, then someone had deactivated them um, for a secondary market. And and another individual had obviously purchased all of them uh, to uh, illegally reactivate them and get them up and running again as fully viable uh, submachine guns with a capacity with a 30-round magazine of that being emptied in around about two seconds at 1,200 rounds a minute. And now you said earlier that there was sort of they had been there had been they were unique, and that's what attracted members of the underworld, I suppose, to them. Was it the fact that they could fire so quick, and were they accurate? Was there any particular reason that they were used in gangland shootings? Because we don't see so much of that. I think in these territories, um, usually see handguns being used, etc. But what was it that really was attractive for the for the the, the gangs? What was attractive, Nicola, was firepower. Mm. Firepower, easily concealable, um, a 30-round magazine. Uh, The gun could be supplied with subsonic ammunition, which when also used with the supplied silencer, the sound moderator suppressor, would make the weapon ideal for assassination, drive-by shooting, uh, where the sound of gunfire would not be necessarily heard uh, by the intended victim or any witnesses. So that suddenly appearing on our streets when, as you say, we were very used to seeing handguns, shotguns, to now have criminals armed with Mm. some machines with huge rate of fire, uh, as well as silencers with this specialist ammunition Mm. presented to us, yes, quite a unique um, worry. Uh, And people were being killed. Would you uh, not have had bullets flying everywhere in that scenario, or was it a sort of more inaccurate weapon that 
I can understand you saying there for drive-by shootings, they were obviously getting more than one opportunity, you know, for the bullet to hit the target. But were they were they very, very accurate or, or were there, you know, you, you think of these weapons and you just think of pedestrians, of people in the vicinity getting hit by random stray bullets. And that really was the problem mm. because the armorer who uh, reactivated these guns um, hadn't used a rifled barrel, which would allow the bullet to spin accurately in the direction in which it was pointed. Uh, he had used uh, a smooth bore, so the bullet would tumble. And therefore, the gun was only really useful to uh, the, its user, the shooter, um, at very close range as you're suggesting, anything further, and you're beginning to spray. And if you're trying to get control of a gun that is loosing off 30-round magazine in two seconds, um, this particular armourer had disabled the safety, so there was no safety, and there was no fire select switch, so you couldn't just fire off one round in self-loading. It was fully automatic. And I know from testing one of these guns, you pull the trigger, that first second is such a wow, you've just fired 15 rounds in very short succession. Um, by the time you've, your head has got round that and you let go of the trigger, you may well have emptied the entire magazine randomly without any ability to hold the gun on target. Mm. Very, very scary piece of kit in very inexpert hands. Yes, and that's what I was going to it. say to you. Like, of course, the, the you know members of the gangland fraternity you know, back in the 90s, they, nothing has changed much. They're chaotic individuals, uh, you know, often young and alpha males trying to have every every piece of equipment in their armory, the fast cars, the women, whatever. And a gun like that would give them a certain image too, wouldn't it? Indeed, but also a huge risk if you're found in possession of it, because some of these guns were what we called a, a dialer gun whereby someone who needed one would dial up uh, an individual they knew was holding one, and then when they would have it delivered, sometimes by a, a, a teenager on a bicycle. Yeah. Of course, that gun is accumulating a history of savagery and criminality. You wouldn't want to be found in possession of this gun, mm. fear of everything being attributed back to you um, as either the, the, the holder or a user. So when the, the these murders started, I suppose, in various different territories and um, nowadays maybe police are more uh, open to communicating and cooperating with each other than maybe we have been in the past. But um, obviously you were able to quickly gather the intelligence that they were being used from London to Glasgow and into Dublin. Uh, so every police uh, department that had come across this realize the seriousness and, and the, you know, the scary potential uh, of these guns coming into the, into the underworld. Yes, and that's because I had a great team. Mm. And bless them, that they were the ones who brought their analysis to me, saying we'll, we can see across the country as well as London, and we can see this degree of commonality. Uh, and there was another sideshow that collided with what we, what they had identified, um, which was that there were consignments of guns um, being reported to police by customs, um, saying, if you go now to this location, you will find a batch of guns hidden away in the boot of a car. 
uh, and police went and found them as described. And one of those batches of, uh, of guns down at a, a pub car park at the Tollgate Hotel in Gravesend contained these very machine guns, the MAC-10s, together with silencers and the blue-tipped subsonic ammunition. And that was another aspect of our investigation that collided with the thrust of what we were trying to do, which was identify the source, the armourer for these MAC-10s, and then a host of other handguns. You mentioned customs there, and I suppose we should explain because things have changed. But customs were once very active as intelligence gathering, uh, you know, uh, throughout that period of time. They would have been running their own undercover investigations. They had, you know, very good sources within the underworld. Um, And, you know, it's strange to think now how that worked when you had the police as well doing pretty much the same job. In certain aspects, yes. And one of the anxieties we always had was we had different different values. Um, we're all about you know, arrest, seizure, prosecution. Uh, sometimes with customs, it's easier to just go for the seizure. And, uh, and therefore, we would have a clash in, in styles of working. Mm-hmm. And on this particular investigation, where I highlight in, in the book, that, uh, that really did happen whereby customs were um, calling the police and saying, go now and you will find. And then when it came to me saying, well, how did you know that we should go to that location? Uh, They wouldn't say anything uh, where the information came from. So we were not fighting against customs, but we were having to build up an intelligence picture where I could then go to them and say, this is what we now know. And what we now know is you are being tricked. You're being tricked by people in prison who are trying to do a deal with you, which will be signed off by the Home Secretary, then Michael Howard, who will release these prisoners uh, in the belief that from what you're telling the Home Secretary, um, they've been giving you information about where other criminals have hidden their guns. And I can assure you, it has nothing to do with other criminals. It's all the same people. And this is one extraordinary aspect of this story, um, you know, how that happened. You're, from, from your point of view as the senior investigating officer, trying to find the source of who was supplying these, um, you're trying to get to the head of the snake, essentially. You would have been urging customs to work their contact to try and give up the information about where they were coming from, as opposed to there's three of them in a car down, you know, the road here. Um, how did you discover that behind the scenes and when you untangled all this, that there were prisoners trying to get their sentences cut, um, dealing with the Home Secretary and offering up a few weapons as opposed to the real, uh, the real prize, which was the source of where they were coming from? Great question. Yes, um, without giving away the whole story in the book, um, the, the essence was that we had customs doing one deal, and then we discovered that the Home Office um, officials were doing a completely different deal. And in fact, it was all the same character who was running the show in full Sutton Prison. Mm. It took us a little while, but that was the first major clue. We're actually dealing with um, Home Office officials being hoodwinked um, in order that a particular prisoner in uh, in Full Sutton could get to the Home Secretary and achieve early parole. And then we also discovered with the assistance of the security service MI5, 
that uh, two other inmates at exactly the same prison only a year before had already been released uh, only 11 months into an 18-year stretch uh, with running exactly the same deal of, I'll tell you where um, other criminals have hidden guns if you let us go. Mm. And like at the heart of this, was there a political outcry about these guns making their way into the hands of the underworld? Was there fear on the streets by, you know, the public at that time um, that these guns were in the hands of criminals? And um, I suppose in a way, how did the criminals that were behind bars work out how to work the system? Because that's what they were doing. They were playing one off against the other and they were basically winning their freedom. But, you know, was this the kind of thing that was being spoken about in Parliament? No, it wasn't being spoken about in Parliament, um, and for very obvious reasons. Um, certainly then, the, um, the Home Secretary uh, coming clean that he had done a deal uh, with prisoners with very... No, but I mean runner. was the fact that these guns were on the street, that they were in the hands of the, these underworld characters. Was that a kind of a political issue? Was there fear in the communities? And, you know, had, I suppose, had the media been able to make those links between the various murders in the different territories and how those guns were were connecting them? Okay, yes, there was. Certainly, um, the communities in Moss Side, Manchester, were very concerned, terrified, because these guns were being used. And the book begins with two officers patrolling at night um, because a member of the public has done 999. They turn into a street as they get out of their car to investigate this small group of youths outside a house. One of the youths pulls out a machine gun and shoots at them. Thank God, neither of them are hit, but a terrifying experience. Then later on, two police officers notice uh, a drug steal happening. They give chase, and the man they choose to go after out of the two um, gets down behind a car and chucks something underneath it. When the officers reach him, they find it's a MAC-10 machine gun. And within days of, of that, Um, Devon Dawson, a young man standing outside um, a public house in Cold Harbour Lane, Brixton, is gunned down uh, and is ripped apart by 10 bullets. So yes, communities and police forces terrified and very heavily reported in the media for very obvious reasons, because it's not the British way to have machine guns on our streets, Mm -hmm. certainly in the hands of criminals who are wantonly using them and, and totally indiscriminately. No, absolutely. It's definitely more something you'd like to think, or we certainly would would see more in Mexico or other places like that. So how did you go about sort of finding out exactly what was going on behind the scenes? And how did you how did your investigation lead you to the gunsmith, Anthony Mitchell? Oh, okay. Not trying to give too much of the story away, but We pioneered with the UK telecommunications companies some very clever techniques, which are now common knowledge. But back then, um, it was really quite quite groundbreaking. And the first thing that we did, once we knew the identity of the man in full Sutton prison, who was uh, talking to uh, first customs and then the home office, it was a case of backtracking. So how did he make those communications uh, and we discovered that he was using a solicitor as an intermediary so we had a look at the solicitor and we understood then how the solicitor was operating it 
And he made a couple of mistakes, which then explained to us in very clear detail how the whole operation ran. And uh, it took us a little while, but then we discovered that somebody else was looking at the same players uh, because a man from Glasgow, uh, an infamous uh, well-known criminal there, Paul Ferris, and he's written a book, I think he's even done a YouTube video about this, um, he wants these same MAC-10s and he wants uh, to send people to London to, to buy them and um, it doesn't go according to plan. So he has to come down to London to, uh, to purchase three with ammunition and silencers and gets captured well and truly by uh, the security service and uh, the regional crime squad. Mm. Is he Glasgow or is he from Glasgow, isn't he, Paul Ferris? Yeah, Paul Ferris yes. is, a, is a well-known gentleman from, from Strathclyde, uh, well-known then to what the Strathclyde Police, now Police Scotland. But yes, a very well-known criminal. So there was co- good cooperation between your own team and Scottish police? And not initially. You can quite understand that they were much closer to identifying some key players than we were. Uh, obviously, our man in Full Sutton Prison is completely contained. Who he's talking to, we had just worked it out. Um, and we worked out who the armourer was, and quite understandably, um, Strathclyde Police and Security Service were so much closer uh, to what Paul Ferris was about to do and didn't want to see that compromised. But as soon as their side of the investigation had been cracked and they had arrested uh, Paul Ferris uh, and another chap called John Ackerman uh, in London uh, in the midst of the purchase, uh, yes, the shutters uh, went up and all the intelligence that uh, we all had, we were then able to share and move on to the next stage, which is to go after the armourer and his uh, his uh, couriers. So what does that feel like when, you know, I'm sure while you had a very good picture of what was happening, uh, Strathclyde police were able to probably fill in pieces of your jigsaw for you. Um, when you so- suddenly start seeing a clearer picture in a case that is so important to crack, really. Um, how does it feel for that cooperation to know that they had a bit of the information, you'd another bit? Well, it's hugely exciting because you've been working effectively from a desktop um, analytical tool. So to now have real pieces uh, involving real people that you can um, go after, hugely exciting. And, and we were a team um, that would collaborate for success with whoever else could contribute. Uh, and we were highly effective at it. And, and this, this was my first major investigation um, as a detective inspector. And I wasn't indoctrinated in any um, ideals that well, we must keep this into silos. We're not going to share. My view was um, we need to collaborate for success. And success is a shared goal here. Let's get the armor and let's find the guns and who's been buying them so that we can get the whole damn lot off the street. Mm. So who was Mitchell? What was his background? Well, you can Google him. Um, you know, the book is based on, on what really happened. So you'll find some of the names have been changed, but you'll find the key players um, are very real people. So Anthony Mitchell was a special constable uh, in Sussex Police and a registered firearms dealer. And um, he had got this intent in his mind that he was going to be you know, the greatest gunsmith and had taken uh, a number of deactivated MAC-10s and worked on them. But he was also working on a whole host of handguns um, as a registered firearms dealer, and he had developed a technique whereby he could just lose them from um, any uh, authorised record. 
And he did very well at doing that for a substantial period of time. Is it about money with him? Yeah. Um, there's an ego. There's definitely an ego about making the best Mac 10, um, getting, a, getting around um, legislation, getting around policies and procedures that should prevent such things from happening. Um, but at the end of the day, it was all about money. And do you feel he perhaps saw the opportunities through his, his work as a special constable with Sussex Police? Did he see what those kind of weapons could have, you know, their value, I suppose, within the underworld and the emerging uh, and growing uh, threat of organised crime? Almost certainly. And the, the company that he kept at a particular gun range um, down in Kent at the time had a membership that would never be allowed today. And he had a ready customer base uh, and a marketplace where he could um, bring his wares and sell them and for a lot of money. Mm. And um, where is he today, by the way? Is he? Well, he's out about. He's, uh, he's, he's a sentence. Yeah. Um, yes, he's, he's out there. He would be in his, uh, let me just think, he'd be probably about 70 now. Mm. I presume any sort of proceeds of crime that he may have uh, accumulated during that period have been stripped from him? Well, yeah, you'd have to get to the end of the book to realise what didn't go quite according to my plan. Mm. Um, but he was stripped of £25,000. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the angles in the book and uh, one of the names that I have changed is the man who was uh, orchestrating much of this uh, to secure his release from prison. I've called him uh, Fred Donovan. Uh, I'm fairly certain there are enough signposts in the book that uh, the man who plays uh, the character of Fred Donovan will know exactly who he is. Um, and he'll now know why he didn't get any benefits uh, and how that happened. And how many more years after this investigation and cracking this did you work as a police officer? Oh, uh, I retired uh, on appointment uh, to a new job in uh, July 2011. So, uh, you know, as a highlight, I suppose, of your career, it presumably stands out that you've you've penned a book about it. And, you know, there's so much in the book that is, as I said at the beginning, this is a very complex story in one way. There's many sort of wow moments in it, like the situation with the Home Secretary. Um, it was clearly something that, you know, really stood out in your own career, in your own lifetime. Yeah, it, it was, and um, you kind of have noticed that from the book because it was my very first major investigation at Scotland Yard. Um, it stood out for all the reasons you pointed out, but it didn't take long for um, after the success of this investigation for me to start presenting to various um, government officials, say, we must learn from this, and... Um, Two years later, I was appointed as uh, an advisor to the ambassador to the United Nations to work on a treaty uh, of many of its provisions were based on our learning from Operation Abenar to close the gap, not only um, domestically, but internationally. Uh, and that's what we did. So explain that. Are, are you talking about within communications and cooperations or, you, you know, um, is that what you're talking about between the forces? I know in the UK things have changed now and customs are no longer 
maybe, am I right, so active in uh, intelligence operations or maybe not active at all in them. Um, so is that what you're talking about, the structures of, of law enforcement and who was fighting what? To a certain extent, but it's, it's much bigger than that. So at, uh, at that time, um, and it was 1998 onwards, the, the, the G8 and the United Nations worked on uh, something called the UN Transnational Organized Crime Convention to create parity around the world in countering criminality. And one of the supplementary protocols, a treaty uh, that went with that convention, was is is called the UN Firearms Protocol, and I was the advisor and and wrote uh, some of the provisions, which were then negotiated at the UN. And I went on to address the United Nations General Assembly in New York uh, to get this um, treaty ratified. You know, so um, it's it's more than just localized collaboration. This was international collaboration based on a, a legislative framework that we would all sign up to amongst all uh, United Nations member countries. And obviously that's recognising the threat of firearms within the criminal underworld. And as I said, it was this sort of emerging, growing criminal underworld back in the early 90s. And it has exploded, really, hasn't it? The, uh, you know, the, the um, gangs, I suppose, the, the golden era of cocaine and all the rest of it that has financed it to something which is a completely different outlook than it was back in the 90s. They've more money now. They've there's more gangs. Uh, you know, there's a still it is growing and growing all the time. Yeah, there, there are um, facets to it, which is terrifying now for the, for the young uh, police officer um, encountering the sort of things that I encountered. What I would say from a, um, a European Union and a therefore UK perspective was that the standards we introduced uh, on the, based on the learning from Abenar about Mitchell and the capability to reactivate uh, firearms, it's very hard now to reactivate a gun that has been deactivated to the EU UK standard. We just don't see it. And it's interesting looking at what's been in the news recently about criminals realizing how hard it is to get hold of real guns, um, adapting, converting blank firing pistols that are legally owned or acquired, but then with ammunition, uh, we're seeing 3D printing, every way in which governments squeeze the ability to get access to live firing weapons, criminals will try to find another way um, to, to make them for themselves. And that's what Abenar was about. How do we stop this dynamic if, of the legal arms trade leaking into the illicit arms trade uh, for the benefit of, of, of serious organized crime and to the absolute horror and detriment of the general public. Because I know, and it's in the book, that one of these guns was used uh, after the investigation was over in 2003 uh, in a, a drive-by shooting in Manchester, sorry, in Birmingham. It's given the colloquial name of being the, um, the, the murder of the Shakespeare sisters um, very recently, I was at the Metropolitan Police um, Firearms Forensics Unit where they were showing the imagery of a gun that they have yet to recover, but it's very clearly another Abenar MAC-10. Um, they're still out there in small numbers, uh, but they're still out there. Mm -hmm. So I suppose finally what, what happened came of Michael Howard. Did he ever sort of uh, 
apologize for what went on and, and what came of all those are the certainly some of the criminals that he, he pardoned and reduced their sentences for? Well, the way journalists have written it up, Nicola, is that he's never apologized. Yeah. And in fact, uh, a particular member of parliament, uh, Peter Kilfoyle, who was a Labour MP uh, for Liverpool, he um, really campaigned to have uh, the release of these two men uh, reinvestigated. He uh, made all sorts of allegations. And it, it wasn't until 2005 that he finally succeeded in having that reinvestigated. And the two um, prison inmates, uh, well-known, um, Hass and Bennett, uh, the Home Secretary, had given them a royal prerogative of mercy, that is to release them. Um, and it was reinvestigated by a good uh, colleague of mine, uh, Graham McNulty, and he successfully had them convicted uh, at the Crown Court, and they were sentenced to 20 and 22 years for um, basically running the scam that tricked the Home Secretary. And the Home Secretary then, uh, Michael Howard, I seem to remember journalists reported it saying, um, he said he blamed it on, on the judiciary um, because he'd had a letter from a judge saying that these two men should be given the benefit. We'd call that a brass neck over here. Um, yes, I think you probably would. And, and of course, when this second attempt was made, um, it, it was just he had agreed in principle to it for the third man I'm calling uh, Fred Donovan. However, um, he lost, his party lost the election and he was never able to finish it. Uh, and there was a completely different outcome for Fred Donovan than there was for Hassan Bennett. Well, Michael Hallow is author of Operation Abenar Inside, story of Britain's biggest gun running scandal. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. Thank you, Nicola. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.